Hello and welcome to the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. It is episode five of this new era and I am Ando and with me is Mitch. How are you, Mitch? I'm good. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. It's great to have you with us. And Mitch, why don't you tell everybody who we are, what we're about? Yeah, so we're two diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. Real, family-friendly, and positive. Get involved. Get involved. So let's go through the schedule for this episode. It's going to be relatively succinct, but at the same time, we've got some pretty juicy things to be getting into. Mm -hmm. So to start with, we have a bit of an apology to be making to a certain Australian rugby player who perhaps did not make our team sheets for the Wallabies teams that we chose last week. Maybe he should have. So we're going to be having an apology. You'll find out who very soon. And then after that, we're going to be moving through into some pretty spicy news that's come out this afternoon, actually this evening from Rugby Australia about some of the issues and some of the things they're going to be hoping to put in place in response to the COVID-19 issues surrounding society and rugby. And then finally moving forward into the 2015 World Cup game that we watched over the weekend, Australia versus England and talking through all of that. I'm pretty excited, Mitch. How about you? Yeah, I'm really excited. We've got some good stuff to talk about today, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. Where can people find us? Yeah, so one thing we wanted to say before we started off today is that we do have some social media platforms that we would love to hear from you guys on. Um, We're on Instagram. You can find us at pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We're putting some cool stuff up on there, so give us a follow. Uh, we've also got a Facebook page where Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. And if Twitter's your thing, which it is definitely Ando's thing, it's not mine, but we are at, <laughs> at Pick underscore Drive Rugby. So send us a tweet and we'd love to hear from you. We really, really would. Um, now, plans for next week. There are two potential things we're going to be doing. One definite, one maybe. So the potent, the definite thing is we're going to be reviewing the 2019 World Cup. Um, Mitch, why are we doing this? Well, we watched the 2015 World Cup together yesterday, and it was just such a great uh, time to be watching rugby again. Uh, we've had <laughs> yeah. such a brilliant tournament. It's just finished uh, at the end of last year in Japan. And, I mean, we weren't around at that time, so we thought, why not just dive into that, dissect it, and talk about the the highs and lows of the tournament, who did well, who didn't do well, um, what the the key games were, and just have a good general chat about it. Yeah, there were some awesome, incredible moments. Not really... I mean, there were some good games from Australia, got to be honest. There were some, but some you good just moments. had some amazing storylines, particularly surrounding Japan and South Africa. Uh, also, to an extent, Wales. Wales got further than I think anyone expected. Um, so mm. there's some really great things to be chatting about there. Definitely. Now, the second thing, Mitch, why, why, don't, you, why don't you talk about this? Because you're kind of the one that's being able to drive this a little bit. Yeah, so we potentially have a, a guest joining us next week that's going to be very exciting. We are in the in the process of getting him on, so fingers crossed so it all exciting. goes ahead. But yep. at this stage, we are aligned to talk to Harry Johnson-Holmes from the Waratahs and the Wallabies. Get in. That is so awesome. So he's um, been very generous with his time and is happy to come on and have a chat with us. So we're going to be talking to him about, well, a few different things. Part of, part of it's going to be how do you be a professional rugby player in social isolation and lockdown? That's going to be one thing. Mitch, what do you want to ask him? Just the general, uh, I guess, vibe around the Waratahs team at the moment. It's not been mm-hmm. the best year for them. So it's a new coach. It's a new setup. There's a lot of new faces. So I think we'll have a chat about that and see how the seven rounds that we have seen of the Waratahs so far, what his thoughts are around that. Well, that's going to be coming up next week if the stars do align and they look to be doing so, so far. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. That is what we're going to be doing. Let's jump on now to our apology. Welcome back. So we have a bit of an apology to make, unfortunately, last week when we we named our 23 Wallabies teams. There was one, potentially two players that we overlooked. So sad. It really is sad. Um, I don't know if anyone out there knows who the player is, but I can reveal that it was Pete Samu from the Brumbies. Dear, dear Pete Samu. I don't know how this happened, how he was overlooked. 
we were talking about who we had at number six, who we had at number five. Salakai Loto was in there. And we just kind of said there's no one else. How wrong we were. How and I'm wrong sure, we I'm were. sure that really hurt when we said there's just nobody else that could possibly fill that spot. And Pete Samu is sitting there, standing there, listening, as he undoubtedly does to our podcast, saying, I'm here. I could fill that position. I could be that man that you need me to be. And yet we overlooked him. So for me, I need to say, dear Pete Samu, I am sorry. Mr. Samu, we apologize. We so- we're sorry that you didn't make our team. But if, if it was anything. being announced today, you'd be there. <laughs> I'd have him as a captain, just as a, oh my god, I'm so sorry I didn't include you in my please, team. Please, please be in the team. Please, you can be captain. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other player that we also forgot about that didn't come into our consideration, probably because he is playing off in Europe, and that is what he is, but uh, Nick White from the Brumbies as well. I know. He signed for the Brumbies in 2021, so he was eligible. He's playing for Exeter, the team that is top of the table in the English Premiership, one of the best teams over the last five years in English rugby. And he's the starting scrum half, and yet we did not even utter his name but once. Not once. Whoops. Uh, Nick White, we're sorry. We're really sorry. Um, Pete Samu, we're sorry. There seems to be a thing about people with moustaches that are just getting left off our lists. And that are potentially living down in Canberra. <laughs> All right, guys, we're sorry. I think we need to leave it there. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up there. We'll move on. Let's get back into the rugby chat. I think we all can breathe a collective sigh of relief now that that weight is off our shoulders. So in (sighs) and out. Now, let us move to the spicy news of this week. And actually, the spicy news is really based upon the events of Sunday night and Monday night. So we are recording Monday night and it's very timely because there's a whole bunch of information that has come out. But let's start with Sunday evening and a statement from Rupa, the Rugby Union Players Association. Mitch, what did they put a statement out about? Okay, so Rupa, in association with the players, have put a statement out last yesterday evening um, about, and they're calling it the information vacuum for the future of rugby. So they've stated, while our colleagues in other major football codes across Australia have been meeting with their governing bodies for weeks Rugby Australia has refused to share any information about the future financial direction of the game. Now, this was released by the chief executive officer of Rupa, which is Justin Harrison. So there's Mm. a lot to kind of divulge about that. I don't think... Let's come back to that specific announced statement in a moment because it kind of goes hand in hand with what Rugby Australia released today, actually at about 6pm tonight. Um. So there's been a whole bunch of movement from from Rugby Australia based upon the 2019 AGM, which happened, um, well, obviously recently. And the main kind of talking point from the AGM was the financial statistics, which haven't yet been audited because of the COVID isolation and lockdown that's going on. Um, But the initial estimates and figures that Rugby Australia have released is that they're going to be, uh, they are experiencing a $9.4 million deficit in 2019. That's massive. It's pretty massive. Um, Now, they say that's to be expected in the World Cup year. I mean, we have reduced uh, internationals, which are a major source of revenue, plus there's a lot more expenditure from the costs of having a team over in Japan for over a month. So Um, is that that what they're saying, that it's to be expected in a World Cup year that we have a deficit? Yeah, a deficit, but the 9.4 million of deficit is um, beyond normal expectations. Because don't World Rugby foot the bill for some of the cost of the World Cup of having players there. It's not all Rugby Australia's responsibility. They're probably, you you might know more about that. That would sound reasonable. Um, But I think the points that Raylene Castle was making, or at least a statement from Rugby Australia, was that the, particularly the decreased games as a result of the 2019 World Cup is led to a reduction. Um, So basically, 
there are some reasons that they provide for some of the deficit. Do you want to run through those? Okay, so we've got high-performance player payments, community rugby grants, marketing and corporate expenses, including the Falau payout in November. Um, and then, yeah, that's it. Yeah, those are the main ones. So there are a few interesting points about this. I think the idea of community rugby grants being increased is a good thing because we do need to be growing the grassroots game and that is an area of weakness for rugby union as a sport in general. The high-performance player payments, they're interesting. Um, I think what that seems to be a reaction to over the last couple of years is the increasing exodus of quality Australian players to European leagues. Mm. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, Michael Hooper's on a pretty significant um, paycheck. He yep. signed a multi-million deal what last year. Um, yep. Was it a five million, four million dollar deal for like a five-year period? Yeah, it's five um, years. I can't remember the exact amount. Yeah. It was significant. It was very, very high. Um, and you look at a lot of the um, under-20s players who have been coming through, so kind of your Harrisons, your Lalesio, your Harry Wilson, um, all those guys, Yeah, they actually got signed on really early by Rugby Australia because they wanted to be making sure that they weren't getting poached by Rugby League particularly or going overseas and getting um, snapped up by development programs in Europe. Um, so it I don't expect them to be on mega money, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of the high-performance player payments are to that younger generation uh, who they're trying to keep in the game long-term. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. The interesting one is the Falau payment. So it's kind of bundled in within the marketing and corporate expenses. Yeah, I saw that listed there, and I was like, are we just sweeping that under the rug? Are we just saying that's marketing, (laughs) that we've got Rugby Um, Australia listed in the media? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's an int- What I really want to see, because like I said before, they haven't done the full financial audit because um, Rugby Australia offices are basically in lockdown. Yeah. And I'm, I'd really like to see that come out to see if there's any information you can kind of derive from the Falau payout. So if you can, if we know that we have a $9.4 million deficit and 6.6 of that is due to community rugby, high performance player, marketing and corporate expenses, well, then couldn't you take away community rugby grants and high-performance player payments from the $6.6 million and then figure out how much is left for the marketing and corporate expenses and then simply look at the 2018 audit and then see the comparable figures and kind of make a pretty accurate estimate on the flower payout based on that? Yeah, you could do it. We'd have to see how much detail actually comes out in a financial audit for what um, Rugby Australia post. But that's what I'm really waiting to see. Well, it has been so interesting around this whole Flower case that Rugby Australia came out and they didn't announce figures. Mm-hmm. Um, it did. There was some um, talk in the media of what the figures were and Rugby Australia just came out and said, no, that's not what it was. It wasn't near that. But they wouldn't they wouldn't indicate what, what sort of figures we were looking at. So... Again, it's interesting that they've bundled that in with something else and they're kind of trying to hide it. Maybe well, they did pay more than they were wanting to. Yeah, Castle was really clear that the reason why they weren't talking and telling how much it was going to be was because it was um, it was like a contractual thing. I've forgotten yeah. the right language for it, but basically they signed documentation to say that we will not disclose how much was paid and so they simply flat out refused. And that's why yeah. you also haven't heard anything from Falau either. Um, he hasn't mentioned anything anything at all because he's under the contractual obligation to not well maybe not contractual but he signed a document saying that he would not talk about it non-disclosure agreement that's the language. that's it yeah that's um it. so yeah anyway anything else you want to comment on that before we move to some of the other things from the agm i just find it interesting to think that we're in a deficit in a world cup year uh to me it seems that a world cup year actually brings in more more viewers Yep. Because the, there may not be as many test matches per se, actual test matches in quote quotations, but mm-hmm. there aren't. There are definitely more matches played. Like the yep. Wallabies are still playing the games in the World Cup. They still play their warm up games. They still played their mid season games. Um, I, I don't know where those figures come from because I would I, I would I would think that a World Cup would bring in more revenue mm. than a normal standard rugby year. 
Yeah, I took that at face value, so I'm not really too sure what to go with that. But maybe but I'm we not can saying Rugby Australia is lying or anything. I'm definitely not saying that. So yeah. I just I just find that surprising that they're saying that a World Cup year would bring in a loss. Yeah. Well, let's move on. Um, also at the AGM, you had three new directors voted in. You had Peter Wig, who's the chairman of Supercars, um, strong connection, lifetime member of Mossman Rugby Club. Um, Brett Godfrey, he's a former founder of Virgin Australia, and then Dan Herbert, 67 cap Wallaby, 124 Queensland caps, and eight years involved on the executive of Queensland Rugby. So he's a bit of a Wallabies legend. Um, Raylene Castle has taken a 50% pay cut. Rugby Australia executive team to take a 30% pay cut. Um, the discussions with Fox Sport about ongoing funding are ongoing and the media tests are off. Um, like we kind of hinted at in previous weeks mm. on the pod, they just won't be happening. So we won't be having Ireland um, come out to Australia. and Fiji. The, yeah, Fiji as well. I think we might need um, to bring some of that sad music back for this segment. <laughs> Maybe we do. Maybe we do. Um, <laughs> now, World Rugby. This is an interesting point. I've, and I've deliberately skipped over with Rupert discussions. We're going to come back to that. Yep. Um, World Rugby are looking at providing loans to Tier 1 nations after this, after the success of the 2019 World Cup. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that this has been announced because World Rugby, I, I, I don't know the figures, and I don't think anyone does know the figures, but they're sitting on a massive amount of money. They mm-hmm. made so much profit from the World Cup because they took all of the, they took it all in. Um, yeah. And the fact that they're not doing something like this or that they wouldn't do something like this is it just doesn't make sense. So I'm not surprised that this has been announced. There are so many Tier 1 nations, Australia, New Zealand, I don't, South Africa as well. Everyone has been affected by this, but yep. everyone is also not doing financially all that well as a game. I don't think Australia is one of the only ones in the world that are on a knife edge. No, you look at a lot of the um so I follow the English Premiership relatively closely and you look at a lot of the teams over there and they're really struggling as well. Um lots of teams are coming out with 25% pay cuts for uh players and staff. Um there's a lot of talk about how some clubs might just go insolvent because they simply cannot afford to keep operating um with all the expenses without the re- regular revenue coming in. Um well, what, let's keep moving forward. Let's actually talk about that because it kind of segues nicely into the idea of player yep. cuts. So the initial Sunday night announcement was that Rupert were and the players were really put out about the information vacuum that they were in. Now, there is going to be a discussion. For, um, Rugby Australia have confirmed it today, this afternoon, that they will be having an ongoing dialogue with Rupert starting from tomorrow. And the reason why they had been delaying this meeting was because they wanted to have more clarity around the options going forward so they could bring them to the table to discuss with Rupert rather than coming forward and going, well, we're not really sure where we're at, so let's just talk about it in vague, ambiguous terms. So from my understanding of what Raylene Castle said within her announcement today and the interview she gave to a number of journalists afterwards was um, they're going to the table with suggested options but uh, the expectation is that it is a constructive dialogue. It is not a, here's the option, take it or leave it. It's, yeah. hey, let's, let's work through this together. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest um, the biggest point that came out on Sunday night by the players was that they had been told nothing, and they mm. had been told that there was potentially a, a competition going ahead. Um, it was going to be beginning of April, then it got postponed to may now we don't know if it's going ahead at all they're in the same boat as us as fans because they were just told we're not we're, we're ceasing operations for two weeks for three weeks for a month we don't know how they didn't know how long they were going to be working from home we didn't know how long there was going to be no rugby and so they just they had this cloud of unknowing over their heads just not knowing when things were going to go back to normal and if they were going to continue being paid so i think it's it's a good thing that this has happened I think so. And if they're following the lead of other uh, sports around Australia and around the world, it's likely we're going to be looking initially at um, cuts, perhaps 25% ish, um, and then maybe even increasing down the line. Uh, The reality is, from what I'm hearing, 
it simply is a case that if players and staff aren't willing to take some cuts, be they yeah. temporary or not, the reality is clubs may well go under and then their entire contract is null and void and means nothing. Um, so it's better to take a cut and for the club to remain viable than it is to hold on to what you're contractually obligated to receive and then simply um, and then then to lose everything. Yeah. I think what's unfortunate, well, what Rugby Australia has done by coming out and saying this and waiting until they had the options available to come to Rupa and the players and say these are the options we're going ahead with is good. But unfortunately, mm. um, it has given the chance that the AFL and Rugby League have now come up. We, as a sport, were so proactive in announcing the closure of our competition and to, to pause things that for yep. once it was great to see that rugby was on the front foot. We mm-hmm. were the first ones to be making the calls. And yep. now I think, unfortunately, the Rugby Australia has let that go too long and without just uncertainty yep. that now they've been forced to make a decision because the NRL has come out and, and said what their plans are and what they're doing with players and what they're doing with the clubs and the AFL as well. And it's sort of... Rugby Australia and the rugby community is kind of like, well, where do we sit? We've just been told that nothing's happening, and what are we getting paid? Are the, the players going to get paid? Is it going to happen? Yeah. Are we not going to happen? So it's unfortunate that we've had to wait this long to hear something, but I think the steps that they're going forward with are the right ones. I agree, and I think what it's a reflection of is probably the inherent strength of rugby league and AFL from a financial point of view, where they can. Yeah be doing that forecasting a lot earlier, maybe because they simply have the staffing and the clout to be able to run through those models and figures. Um, Rugby Australia has obviously had financial issues for a while and maybe just simply didn't have the ability to get as organised about that side of things as the other sports. Um, I think on the other foot as well, the NRL and the AFL are completely domestic competitions so they True. they run everything in-house whereas rugby australia we're dealing with sansa so we need to know if there's any payments coming from sansa to keep the competition afloat if if the sponsors are going to continue putting money in so we're reliant on the other uh, nations and the governing bodies of new zealand and south africa and argentina to also decide what they're doing mm. to be able to make that call as well so it's hard for rugby well one of the interesting things watching the interview was that um, Raylene Castle was uh, specifically asked whether there would be four super rugby teams emerging from the end of this um, COVID-19 kind of lockdown. And it's basically, she, she couldn't confirm. She said that they were working towards a four-team model, and that's the obvious, like, they're contractually obligated to provide a product for Sansa that has four Australian teams in it. Uh, but they would have to, they would, I can't remember the specific language she used, but it was something to the effect of they'd be crazy to not be considering other scenarios just in case. Um, so you so realistically... To cutting a, a super rugby team. Yeah. Financially. Yep. But we, if you if you think about it, we we as a as a nation could sustain four teams if we had to cut potentially the Rebels or the Brumbies due to financial strain. Surely we could put the Western Force back in there. They've been well, backed by Twiggy uh, Forest. I think the issue is probably the combination of ongoing, like just the lack of revenue that's coming in, versus the already established contracts that would be. And that, yeah, yeah, your comment about Twiggy Forest was interesting because she uh, she was asked about whether they'd be looking at kind of wealthy benefactors to maybe help support Australian rugby, and um, she said that they hadn't had conversations with Andrew Twiggy Forest about mm. this. That was an option. Uh, the idea of having wealthy benefactors was one of the options that they were considering moving forward. Please, Rugby um, Australia, please don't close that door before it's even been opened. Exactly. That she was. It was a very open answer without giving anything away either. Yeah. Okay. I think that's it on that topic for now. Any final thoughts you wanted to add about Rugby Australia or the Rupert statement? Nope. I think I'm good. All right, let's quickly comment on these last two ones. They're just a little bit more light, well, kind of light in a way. Um, we've spoken a bit about Joe Marler and his incidents over the last couple of weeks. He's a bit of a favourite of the pod. <laughs> it's just a bit silly, so it's a bit of fun. Um, now, Joe Marler is considering quitting rugby. 
Now, this is a pretty, in some ways it's surprising, in some ways it's not. He actually quit international rugby um, playing for England in 2018, citing kind of personal and family reasons. He wanted to be spending more time with his young son and his wife. Um, and it was only a SOS from Eddie Jones in the lead up to the 2019 Rugby World Cup that got him back playing international rugby. No, I haven't read this article, but is he talking about quitting completely or just quitting international? Quitting completely. So supposedly he, um, the enforced isolation is leading him to spending more time with his family and reconsidering the, um, his kind of priorities. And as we've spoken about, he's really well known just for being an absolute character of the game, which sometimes gets him into trouble. But a lot of the time, uh, what he does isn't malicious. You might from the outside be able to look at it and go, that was just dumb, but yeah. it's not malicious. So he really is just a clown. <laughs> he's just a clown that sometimes oversteps the mark. Um, but he's a fantastic character. And for him to cop that 10-week ban... And then the amount of abuse that he received on particularly Twitter was just insane. There were people that were comparing what he did to sexual assault and rape, Mm. which is, is, I honestly think that's offensive to people who have suffered um, assault. All he did was cup another person's private parts on a rugby field just to try and get a reaction and, like, I'm not necessarily condoning that, but that's not, in my mind, moving into those broader categories of no. assault. And so he he received a lot of abuse from that. And supposedly, according to this article, that's just leading him to reconsider whether he still wants to basically participate in um, professional rugby. He's kind of nearing the end of his career. Um And I'm pretty sure he'd have a great opportunity to be a pundit afterwards if he wanted to. Yeah, I think it's a bit, it's unfortunate if he does end his career now, just due to the circumstances that he finished up on with the ban and the, the controversy mm. around it. It, mm. it would probably be, in some ways, it would be better just to see him come back, play a few more domestic games one when the competition's back up and running, and then, I don't know, maybe at the end of next se- uh, midway through next season, he announces his retirement. It would probably be a bit of a dampener on, the, on his career as a person if he just pulled the pin now. Yeah, he's contracted until the end of 2021 with his club, so um, we'll see how that one turns out. Well, let's move on. Um, Lastly, James Haskell on his rugby podcast has come out and basically slamming the rugby coverage. Um, His commentary was that rugby is very insular and it doesn't recognise the fact that it's a small fish in a very big pond of professional sport and kind of the entertainment industry. And he thinks that there can be there's much that can be done to improve match day experiences, to fill stadiums, create create atmospheres and days out, that kind of thing. What do you think about that from an Australian rugby perspective? I think the yeah the overall match day experience could be improved um, in the in the Australian from out from the New South Wales perspective, mm. uh, particularly in the last few years, the the interest in the game has really fallen away. So we don't fill the stadiums up. We don't even go anywhere near filling the stadiums up. There's lots of empty seats around. Uh, and that can sometimes cause a bit of a lack of atmosphere at those games. It would be good to see some new initiatives. I don't know what they would be um, mm. just taking place. Although in saying that, uh, I went out to the Sevens this year, the Sydney yep. Sevens out at um, Parramatta. Thank and that was, that was awesome. That really was. They had so much on to do that it wasn't just about the rugby, but yep. it was also about being there, having fun, engaging with people. They had games being played in the foyers. They had live bands playing and live entertainment, food trucks, lots of different food opportunities. Um, yeah, it was it was really good. I think we just need to reconsider the way in which games are held. At, like, we're, we're playing games in stadiums that are too big for rugby at the moment. Um, we really need to be looking at kind of boutique stadiums like Bankwest out at Parramatta. What's that capacity now? Is it kind of low 20s? Yeah, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but, yeah, it's about that. 
Yeah, before the renovations, it was, it was about 17,000, but I can't remember what it is after the renovations. That is a fantastic stadium to go out to. You've been there since the renovations. I've been there a bunch of times watching some A-League out there. And that is a smaller stadium. But if you go out to somewhere like ANZ to watch a game, and it's just too big for the crowd sizes that we're getting. And Massive. you're basically just playing in what's essentially an empty stadium. Yeah. I can remember last year I went out to a league game with my brother. Uh, it was a Bulldogs game, and it was at ANZ, and there was it was probably about five thousand people there. And we had we were sitting on the second the second level, the second tier, and we would yep. have had fifty to sixty seats between us and the next people. It was That's just crazy. it was crazy, and it just was so empty. It just felt it. It just had no mm. atmosphere for the game. Well, why don't we move on now? I think that's enough chat on some of the spicy news and some of the issues around because we want to really start getting a bit more upbeat and what a better way to do it than talking about beating England. Oh, yeah. Let's get into it. So now we're going to look at an old Wallabies game. This game that we're looking at for this week was during the 2015 Rugby World Cup. It was a pool game between the Wallabies and England. It was played in England at Twickenham. It was a great game because the Wallabies ended up being victorious. Final score, Australia 33, England 13. Now, Ando, you chose to watch this game this week. Well, why is this game a particular favourite of yours? <laughs> there's a whole bunch of reasons. Oh, there's just... There's almost nothing sweeter than beating England. Um, the motherland, the mother country, they, we, we just have this thing about playing England in any sport. That's, the, that's why the Ashes mean so much. It's just so good to beat them. And we got absolutely smashed by them at the 2019 World Cup. Um, and it just made me think back to fonder times, to better times, where we had a team that was able to just play this incredible brand of fast, aggressive, up-tempo rugby that combined um, abrasiveness and fitness slash endurance with skill as well. And it meant that we absolutely wrecked England in a pool match at home at their own World Cup. And our defeat of England in this game meant that they were the first ever host nation for the Rugby World Cup to not make it past the pool stages. And we were the ones that did that. Sucked in England. Well <laughs> done, Australia. <laughs> yeah, so what ended up happening with this was the Wallabies had played two games prior to this. Um, England had another game after this. The The way that the games had gone so far in the tournament was that whoever was going to win this game was guaranteed to either finish first or second in the pool. The loser was therefore not able to get enough points to get out of the pool stages. Now, mm -hmm. with the Wallabies winning, that meant that they went on to play Wales the next week, which they also won, so they topped the pool and came out in first spot. England, because they lost and they had lost um, most of their other games... I think they'd already probably... lost to Wales. Yeah, so they'd lost to Wales. Um, so they therefore weren't able to get out of the pool, and because they were the host nations, they left the tournament in the pool stages. Oh, it's Brilliant. just... See, you know what? That's, part of what I said before is why I love this game. Um, but also, some of the tries on offer, particularly... We'll get into it in more detail. But particularly, the Foley and Beal try at about, what, 35, 36 35, minutes. 35, yeah. Yeah, it was... It is just one of the best tries in Australian rugby. Um and it really reminds me now of the quality of Bernard Foley and Curly Beal in their prime. Um, we saw glimpses of it throughout the last couple of years with both of those players. Like, they're both good players, but they Foley particularly was at his peak in the 2015 Rugby World Cup. And it's just wonderful to be able to watch that. This team that Checker had chosen for this game particularly was just on point. Yep. They were across the park. There was just talent oozing off this team. Are you the talking specifically about Rob Simmons at number five? Well, definitely. You can't go past <laughs> Rob Simmons. That guy just oozes talent. He oozes it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so we've got Co, Moore, Kepu as the front row, Douglas and Simmons as the locks, Fardy, Hooper, Pocock as the back row. Then you got Genia, Foley, Gitto, Kurandrani. Then you got Horn, Ashley Cooper as the wingers, and Falau at 15. That's a pretty devastating team. And they showed it. The skill set on offer in this game was just immense. The front row, yeah, just everything about this game. What I liked best about this Wallabies team is that Cheka had them looking fit. He mm. had them primed for this World Cup campaign. Now, I don't know what happened if it was um, after this tournament, whether they got a completely new S&C team in or whatever happened, but we just never seemed to get back to that level of fitness and that level of intensity after this this World Cup. Yeah. I'm not too sure. It seems like he reached his peak where he had a... Because what Chekin needed was abrasive ball runners to be able to support his... Um, advantage line games. So he had particularly, I think Kane Douglas was a real unsung hero alongside Scott Fardy. So I think what the two of them were able to do is to just secure quick ball, but also to be that kind of aggressive, those aggressive and abrasive players that really drove the entirety of the team forward. And when we were watching it, you spoke specifically about the intensity that they showed versus the intensity that we've seen in Australian rugby recently. They just seem so, they seem, this team seemed like they wanted the win. They seem so cohesive as a unit Everything they did was together. Someone mm. made a break. There was, I think it was the 15th or 16th minute of the game. Curly Bill makes this massive break straight through the middle. He gets the ball at fullback and he just comes straight through the middle. And he gets through about four defenders and then gets tackled about 20, just before the 22. But in today's game, he would break through and then get tackled. There'd be no one there and they'd turn the ball over. But yep. he had three players that were right on him in defense to be able to turn around and pop the ball to, and they, it kept possession going. Yep. Now, we didn't see that from the Wallabies again after this World Cup. It just seemed like the the mentality of the players changed after this World Cup in mm. that they started to be more individual players as more of, instead of a unit. I wonder why. I wonder why, because Checker was really heavily criticized in his final couple of years for continually picking a core group of players that he'd taken to the 2014 Waratahs grand final win and then the 2015 grand World Cup final. Um, so you're looking at kind of your Kepus, your Hooper, your Foley, Beal, um, Nick Phipps as well would probably yep. be one of those players. Um, he was really hev- heavily criticised for staying loyal to them. Do you think that might have been a factor where he didn't rejuvenate the team when necessary? Because if you actually look at the starting team for the uh, the match that we're talking about now, there's a lot of really familiar names that are still yeah. playing. You've got yeah, Sio, Simmons, Hooper, um, Kurindrani. Falau would have been if he hadn't said stupid stuff. Um, and then some guys that have only retired at the end of last year, like or, or moved on, like Genia, Foley, Pocock, um, Kepu. Ashley Cooper. Yep. Yep. Tatafu. Yeah, so I wonder if the lack of rejuvenation is a factor within the kind of downturn we we saw, because the way that he plays is not a young man's, uh, an old man's way of playing. It definitely is a young man because of the amount of um, just, honestly, aerobic endurance it requires. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I'd need to go back and watch some of the other games post this. I did mm-hmm. watch the game 2018, England versus Australia, in Twickenham right before the World Cup. So this was the last game of 2018 on Saturday. Yep. And yep. they just seemed like a completely... Apart from the the plays that were playing and the fact that they were a completely different team, but they just had no intent. And I don't know if it was a lack of leadership, a lack of direction miscommunications coming from the coaches to the players. Maybe the players weren't buying into what the coaching staff was saying, but everything they did that game just did not go to plan. Mm. Maybe we're seeing the unsung um, leadership influence of Stephen Moore. It could be. 
could be. Because okay, let's actually get point, into the game because there's yeah. a lot to talk about. Why don't we talk about the good stuff rather than talk about how crap Australian rugby is now? Yeah. Um, so, what was what were some of the highlights for you? Okay, where do I start? So the the big hits that the Wallabies were doing, they were smashing England around in this game, mm. particularly in the second half as it sort of got to the fiftieth, sixtieth minute when the game started to it got tied again. So in the 64th minute, it was 20 to 13. Australia were ahead by 20. England were 13. England were getting their getting their sort of second win. They were coming back. They were looking dominant. They were getting a few penalties. They were getting some turnovers. And then Australia just sort of flicked this switch and just started to get really physical. And the big players really stood up. So Scott Fardy, um, Rob Simmons, Kane Douglas, these boys were just smacking players left, right, and centre. And it was it was phenomenal to see. <laughs> I um one of the things I just loved. It's not really an event or a moment, but Bernard Foley scoring twenty eight of thirty three points within the game. So he was just incredible. And now I need to put a bit of a shout out. I won't name the school that I work at as a teacher, but Bernard Foley actually went to my school as a youngster. Really, um, he played rugby at my school up until I think it's late primary or early secondary before he went to a bigger school in our area because they had a bigger program to offer. Um, but he the guy that I sat next to, and I've sat next to for the last four years, coached Bernard Foley when he was at school. Um, wow. So he jokingly claims um, that he is fully responsible for the success that he's had. Um, well, make the claim. Make, you've got to go yeah, Make the claim. We've, we've actually had Foley come to our school for a few of the rugby registration days to kind of help with sign-ups and stuff like that. So that's pretty fun. That is cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So for me, my highlight of the game, there's actually two things. I'm not going to talk about Foley's try at the 34th, 35th minute because we'll come back to that later. For me, it was when... How do I say this? When Joe Marler <laughs> is pulled aside by the referee late in the second half and... That was early in the second half. It was the 48th minute. Was it the 40th minute? 48th. Oh, 48th minute. Okay. Maybe I've just... his. Um, I wanted his pain and his suffering in this moment to extend. Um, <laughs> yeah, 50th minute. 50th minute I'm seeing right here. And so basically, let me give you a bit of context for this scrum straight Joe. Now, in the lead-up to the World Cup, one particular journalist, a guy by the name of um, Brett Mackay, who is a rugby writer on theraw.com.au, he had noticed, maybe he got it from somewhere else, but he had noticed that Joe Marler would never drive straight against the, his opposition prop. He'd always tilt and angle in and drive sideways. Um, are you understanding what I'm saying there? Yeah. Cool. So he'd basically just hinge on his hip and then just like latch on to the like the hip of his opposition prop and just drive in from an angle, right? Yeah, so what and he was, was doing really is obvious. he was driving in at his opposition prop, sort of driving towards the hooker. So yeah, his correct. butt would come out like yeah. a flanker, detached yep. from his hooker, and he would drive at an angle in and up so that yes. the opposition prop ended up standing up and then the hooker also ended up standing up. Yep. It and doesn't... for some reason, his opposition kept getting penalised for it. So Marla was really successful with this, despite it being incredibly obvious for anybody who watched, particularly if you use spider cam. Um, yeah. So the camera hanging directly over the scrum looking down, you can see it perfectly every time. And so Brett Mackay, he wrote a couple of articles about this about a month out from the World Cup and started up a hashtag called Scrum Straight Joe, which it didn't trend because rugby is not that popular um, kind of within a Twitterverse, but it became pretty big in um, writing in rugby circles. And so Bob Dwyer, who's kind of like an Australian based columnist, he put it in his um, weekly column as well. Strum, Bob Dwyer is an ex Wallabies coach. Yep. 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 Yeah. So he jumped onto it as well and it basically became a pretty big thing. And so during this game, there's a couple of scrums early on the England win. But then as the game progresses, the Australian scrum starts to get dominant, and it starts to get dominant because Marla gets pinged like twice in relatively quick succession for not driving straight. And then come the 50th minute, the ref pulls him aside and says, you're not driving straight. 
um, is Roman Poit. And uh, what does Marla say? It's something like, oh, is, is he driving straight? Yeah, is he straight, sir? And he goes, yes. Yes, he is. Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. And just okay. walks away. <laughs> and then immediately, immediately after the penalty that um, he's just given away is kicked by Foley, um, Marla gets hooked. He gets subbed because they know that his kind of gig is out. His, his, everyone's found out his secret. And it was just this massive vindication because the Australian scrum sucked prior to 2015. And this was the moment combined with this dominant scrum penalty in the final few minutes of the game where we basically just shoved England off their ball and said, up you, our scrum is what we're going to attack you with in this game. <laughs> And it it's such brilliant. a turnaround. That's why it matters to me. So that's why it's, that's just one of that's why the the subbing of Joe Marler is one of my favorite parts of this entire game because there's this whole context story that's wrapped up with this like inferiority complex combined with just an Australian journalist on online opinion website. Um, he's, he's a quality ABC journalist too, coming up and starting this hashtag that actually made a difference. Brilliant. It doesn't make any sense though. Like I don't understand why, as a as a an, an old front rower, and playing in that position, why you would do it so. Like he did it every scrum. Now I don't know if this was a, a weakness of his, and that he got to the point where he was so used to doing it that he couldn't drive straight anymore. Mm. Because as soon as he was found out, they hooked him. But he didn't drive straight in one of the scrums in the whole game. Now I haven't gone yeah. back and watched any of the other games. Yep. Or any of his more recent club performances, but he's just—is it the fact that he hasn't got the skills down pat that he can't drive straight? I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would you not just stop doing it when you know that the referee's onto you? I don't know. I don't really care at this point. All—all all it makes me feel good about is the fact that he got pinged for it and that it really helped Australia win. So yeah, it's just—it's just so sweet. It's just so good. Now, one of the th- one of the things that I really enjoyed as well in this game, another uh, sort of a poke in England's England's underbelly, was mm-hmm. seeing in the 70th minute Owen Farrell copying a yellow card for a shoulder <laughs> charge off the ball on Makito. It was absolutely brilliant. Now, if anyone does follow rugby, they will know that in the in the last few years, Owen Farrell has probably gotten away with a few sneaky shoulder charges that potentially should have and could have changed the course of games as they played out. Mm-hmm. But in this case, he got absolutely pinged for it. It was brilliant. Now, 100%. there's there, w- there was two things that happened at the same time. So it was Matt Guido and Foley. They've gone into... They've done sort of like a switch move, and Foley's gone for... Um, Farrell's gone for Guido, who had the balls and, and has offloaded it to... Foley, and Sam Burgess, the ex, the leaguey, the convert, has gone for Foley. Now, Fo, um, Burgess has gone high and absolutely cleaned up Foley, but probably 20 seconds before that even happened, 10, 15 seconds probably, <laughs> felt like forever. Um, so I was just come through and absolutely cleaned up Gitto. He's just tucked the Dude, shoulder it's in. like one second. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like an eternity. It was so obvious. Yeah. He's just I come agree. through, completely off the ball, and just copped Gitto right in the ribs. Now, the referee's seen it. He's pulled it up. He sent it upstairs. And Farrell's just looking around like, what What have I done? And this even... Yeah, I just tackled him, sir. And even when the referee's addressing Farrell at the end, he's like, oh, no, no, I, I was wrapping my arm, sir. I was wrapping my arm. You weren't. That's not a wrapped arm. You've cocked that straight down the side, and you've copped Leading him straight with the in the ribs. It was yep. so good to see him get get pinged for it. I know because he's done it so many times and hasn't, um, and he's gotten away with it. So uh, one of the things it was interesting we commented about it at the time, but despite him not believing it should have actually been a yellow card, and despite it being such an incredibly important game for the English rugby team, he has one word of dispute where he's like, "But sir, blah blah blah," and then realizes it's useless and then just turns and walks away. Yeah. And walks off the pitch. Now, there is so much that I just love about that, that this professional rugby player that has invested so much into the sport is in one of the biggest games of his career and just gets yellow carded at a crunch time when his team are seven points behind. 
there's the opportunity they still could win the game, and he does not argue with the ref beyond one very brief comment before he turns and realizes it's useless and walks away. I think that's something that we really should treasure and value about rugby. Yeah, brilliant. Discipline. Yeah, yeah it seriously matters. Core value of rugby. It seriously matters. Yeah, and respect. Discipline and respect. Um, I play I play soccer, football, and it's just one Shame of the things... Shame on that, you. Oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> it's just one of the things that is completely missing is just the idea of respecting the referee. Um, it's really hard. I actually see I actually see more respect in the kind of Sunday league games than you do on TV, but it's something I just treasure and love about rugby. So long may that live. Now, we need to talk about Foley's try. Yes. Okay. Now, this, this try happens in the 35th minute. And what essentially happens is um, it looks as though... There's basically like a midfield ruck that happens. Australia's in possession. Midfield ruck maybe to the left-hand side of the field. And both Foley and Beal are on the left-hand side of the field. Then they switch back to the right. Okay? They obviously call the move. Genia hears it, sees him coming, plays it off to um, Foley. Foley passes it to Beal. They both break through the line. And Foley continues his support line receives the ball back, and then basically gets over untouched under the post. It's just this incredible, incredible move. And the, just the um, just the synergy between both both Beal and Foley is just incredible to watch again and again and again. I could just watch that try on repeat and never get bored of it. And the thing that I like most about this try is that everyone did their jobs perfectly. Yeah. So the ball to the base of the ruck, Genya picks it up, he goes left, and he can see or he hears the call. You can see Foley and Beal sweeping right. So he turns and he pops it back right. But England defence has seen him already go left, so they follow him left. And then when he pops it right to Beal first... Yeah, Beal first. Beal makes the initial break through the hole, through the defence, and he commits one defender and the fullback. And Foley does perfectly just to stay in exactly the right spot on his hip, that he's just a quick offload away. He's not overrunning. He's not too close. And Beal commits that tackler, takes a tackle, pops it to Foley, and Foley's through and scores. It's just absolutely brilliant. I think it just shows the communication understanding that those two guys had, which is why they were so good for both the Wallabies and the Waratahs. Um, and you can kind of then understand why someone like Checker is trying to hold on to them for the long term and keep them in the same team. Yeah. Um, perhaps that was to his own detriment after a while, though. But still, that's just one of the absolute highlight backline moves. That It's, it's not a set play, which makes it even more enjoyable. Um, it's them reacting to what's happening on the field and then having the skills to actually pull off what yeah. they're seeing. It's so good. And just having that freedom and the ability to just pull it off as well. That, that's yeah. something that the Waratahs and the Wallabies going forward from this uh, from this World Cup seem to lack was those core skill sets to be able to just to pull those moves off, to have that defense, to have the um, the support by another player and to be able to pull it off as well. It's just something we haven't seen since a lot of, unfortunately. But no. yeah, this was brilliant. Well, why don't we do a couple of quick fire final points before we wrap up this commentary? So any any quick points that you want to make about the game? Yeah. Uh, this game particularly put to me, put in my mind how valuable a player Matt Gitto is to the Wallabies and to the back line in general. So yeah. his his kicking game in open play was pinpoint accurate. Yeah. Uh, there was a point yeah. in uh, the 46th minute where ghetto has got the ball. He chips it over the top to find space, and then it bounces twice and goes out. Now, that is just absolute sublime skills by Gitto there because we don't see that again. We still, as a, as a Wallabies team nowadays, we're still lacking that, um, mm-hmm. that gameplay, that ability to kick... The tactical to, kicking game. Tactical, yeah. yeah, kick tactically in open play to also win us the advantage. So I think that was something that really just hit home at how good Gitto was and how much he brought back to that Wallabies team. He also scores that try right on full time where he takes makes the break down the right-hand side and just 
does his <laughs> absolute goose dive over the line, which was brilliant. Especially considering he probably had a broken rib from the previous tackle by Owen Farrell, and that it hurt him getting up again. After yeah, you that. can see him get up, and he's just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My quickfire comment, because you stole mine about Guido's try. Um, Joe Launchbury, English player, has the babiest baby face that anyone has ever, ever baby faced before. Seriously, you look <laughs> at him and you're like, are you 12? But you are definitely a, a man, but you look 12. So that's my quick comment. Anything else from you? He's got the body of a man and the face of a baby. <laughs> it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, last point was just around Israel Folau. Now, I think since we've lost Israel Folau, unfortunately, our vi- watching this game and then the game in 2018 that followed this World Cup, I think, to me, it just highlights what a, a gap we have missed in not having Folau in the Wallabies team. Mm. He was able to just make things of complete nothing. So in the 2018 game, he just he gets the ball, similar kind of position to the the Foley and Beal try from this game, where yep. he gets the ball and he just dances around about four blokes and just yep. goes under the post untouched. And there's no way that he has any right to score that try, but he just absolutely glides through and just makes he just he just scored points left, right, and center with such ease. But it's unfortunate we don't have him anymore. But you know, I mean, in this game, he actually wasn't that good. He um, bombed a try early on in the first ten minutes of the game. Um, he dropped a couple of high balls because I reckon he got unfairly taken out in the air. But anyway, he dropped a couple of high balls, uh, and then he got subbed off in like the fifty something. Yeah, that was something you don't often see. Yeah, well, he um, he actually picked up an ankle injury. I remember it now that for the rest of the World Cup campaign, he was under a kind of injury cloud. Um, and he really wasn't even fit by the time the final came around. Uh, He was on, like, half a leg, Um, but they still tried to get him out onto the field. Um, Apart from that, mate, I think we're we're pretty happy. Any any final thoughts before we wrap that up? No, just good to see the Wallabies do well in a World Cup. Good to see them beat England since everything that has happened after and recently. Look, I want to placate a couple of England fans. Um, I actually really like English rugby, and I follow a lot of it. And the big problem I had when we got absolutely damaged by them in the 2019 World Cup is that I actually follow a lot of their players, and I like them. So it was really, like, I was very upset that we'd lost, but the fact that I actually like some of the players lessened the blow a little bit. But there's the patriotic Australian in me that knows that I'm, I'm, I'm being a traitorous rebel by saying that. I'm so sorry for that admission, Mitch. <laughs> well, it, it was it was very hard to watch us bow out in the quarterfinal against England in 2000 mm. last year. But then when they went on and and England went on and beat New Zealand the week after in the semis, I, I was I was all over the moon. I was happy to <laughs> I was happy to go out to the team that could kick the All Blacks out of the comp. So. That's true. That's true. Um, well, mate, why don't we finish it there? That's our wrap-up of the Australia versus England uh, 2015 World Cup group match. One of the greatest games in Australian rugby history, in my opinion, not necessarily because <laughs> of the kind of winning a World Cup, but, but just because of the humiliation it inflicted upon England. That's why I think it's so great. That's a big call. I don't know if I'd say it's the best, one of my the top games. I don't know if it even ranks in the top five for me, but it was a good oh, game. Oh, you are wrong. Think of everything it means for England and then go from there. Yeah, but what about the All Blacks? Nah, 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 nah. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Let's just focus <laughs> on England's pain right now. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough. Let's finish it there. Brilliant. And that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Episode five of the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast is finished. Um, Mitch, over to you. Thank you for joining us, everyone. It was great to have you with us for another week. Next week, we're going to be looking at the Rugby World Cup 2019 in Japan. If you've got any games you'd like us to particularly look at or any points or moments that you really loved, you'd like us to have a look at and have a chat, Send it through to us on our social media. You can get us on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Gmail. Just, uh, just, just get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We really would. So thank you so much again. And lastly, get involved in Australian rugby. We'll see you next week. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at pick underscore drive rugby. Follow our Instagram at pick underscore drive underscore rugby. Or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.